0: We are broadcasting from the 2017 The Future of Energy Summit. It is powered by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. I'm Pim Fox here with Lisa Abramowitz, and you know, Lisa, our next guest, I would have not expected to see this gentleman here at a conference on energy.
1: Yeah, he bikes all the way here from California.
0: That's right, and and you know, he doesn't. He's he's on the bicycle most of the time, uh, and um, well, he does happen to manage over 200 billion dollars, <laughs> right, and he that. is resp- right, and he is responsible uh, to the retirees of the California. State. A teacher's retirement system. Chris Ailman is the chief investment officer, and he joins us now. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thanks for stopping by. I what wondered. are you? I mean, not, not that we don't love seeing you and having you around, but what are you doing here?
2: Yeah, no, it's very unusual. I think I'm the only chief investment officer that's actually here. I'm only the second, uh, number two pension plan in the whole world that's actually here. Has anyone talked
0: to you? I mean, or you get to be, obs- you get to be anonymous <laughs> I'm here. anonymous, no. one no. even knows We're what you do. We're talking to him right now. Yeah, you guys. <laughs> All right, well. I actually we came him. to, I saw the
2: uh, radio station yeah. here, so I came here to say hi to you. Um, <laughs> No, people don't know us very well here. We're actually kind of incognito, which is kind of nice. It's a great learning experience. Second time I've been here. Um, The future of energy is huge. The demand will continue to rise globally and the sources of energy are going to really diversify. And so that's an investment opportunity. It's a risk and an opportunity to us.
1: Although Chris, you were saying that we do not see other chief investment officers here, certainly not of retirement systems. You have to wonder, you know, will there be a growing amount of demand from public pension managers such as yourself? uh, And how big do you think that demand could be?
2: Oh, I I think it's going to be huge. Energy is already a giant part of everybody's portfolio, but if you think about um, uh, power generation, it's very long-term. It's going to show up in our infrastructure portfolios. It's already impacting our real estate portfolios going to show up in private equity in terms of new opportunities, and new investment, and in the general equity portfolio. Energy, power, generations, a big part of the U.S. equity market.
1: Well, but how much do renewable sources of energy already factor into your portfolio at all, or, or how much do you see the potential for that going forward?
2: I've always been really clear with people. We were an early mover into solar and in wind back in 2003, and an early being an early mover is not necessarily an advantage. Uh, I quote the lo- late Joe Deere who said that, you know, clean energy was a noble way to lose money, but it <laughs> lost us money. There, you know, it's like, there's not really a good noble way. But it way. was noble. <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, it, it definitely is going to be part of the future. You're seeing clean energy show up as much as 10% of the power generation, Uh, Michael Lieberk just showed a slide that said that in some countries it's 28% of the power generation. So it's becoming price competitive, it's still subsidized in many parts of the country, but it's showing up in our infrastructure portfolio, a little bit in our venture capital portfolio, and what's interesting I'm learning here is that companies, people like Alphabet, Amazon, um, buy so much power, more than some countries, they're actually going out and developing their own power generation because it's a critical
0: need to them. When you think about clean energy, you have this whole supply chain that is different than burning fossil fuel of any kind. Having said that, when do we get to the point where it's just energy because the decision-making process changes? As the head of a public pension retirement program, does it matter to your uh, beneficiaries how you make the money for them? Uh, it does. You know, I think, I represent California
2: teachers, and well, it it's not a to surprise. it goes extent.
1: If you lose a ton of money, nobody cares whether it was like nobly or not,
2: right? Exactly. Well, and I, our mandate, first and foremost, is to, is to fully fund that retirement system over 30 years. So, we have to be focused in on return. But representing California teachers, we hear from a lot of them. They are very concerned about how we make our money. But, you know, I think, Pam, when you look at the future of energy, It's, you know it's going to be a long-term trend. I need a big wave. So I'm a bike rider, but we like to surf in California. So I need a big wave, an investment wave that's going to stick around for a long time that we can catch up with. And that's why we're here is to see it early so that we can ride this for a long time. And I think that we'll start talking about energy when there's actually a price on carbon. Right now, coal plants and natural gas plants can burn And they've got to subsidize nuclear and wind and solar to be price competitive, because the Carbon plants don't p- pay for their waste.
1: All right, so Chris, you're biking, you're surfing, I love it. I love the California vibe coming to us right now from Chris Ammon. Uh, You know, you said that it was a noble way to lose money to get in early with renewables. But now, as you listen to the presentations, is there anything that's caught your ear as far as a promising potential investment that you're going to look more at when you get back to California?
2: Um, the a whole world of distributed energy. The fact that with solar on rooftops, you've got people generating electricity all over the place. And the big difference, and they talk about here kind of the holy grail, is battery technology. Um, Is the ability to store all of that renewable, uh, because it comes during the day, or only when it's windy, and you've got to hit it for peak times. So for us, I see this, you know, energy transmission, distribution, is an infrastructure play. Storage will probably become very much a strong infrastructure opportunity.
1: Which companies are at the forefront of the uh, battery technology?
2: well obviously Tesla gets all the right. headlines for the gets giant it. right right but you know it's we, we don't t- spend a lot of time talking about what do you got to when are you gonna dispose of those lithium batteries you know I think we have to look long term it's not always all, all great and glorious but we just saw a couple of slides the automakers are very interesting and if GM and Ford don't get their act together people like Toyota and what Volkswagen are actually going to eat their lunch internationally when it comes to, uh, to electronic vehicles uh, you see a lot of electric cars in California, not so much obviously here in New York or in the Midwest, but you're going to see US right. companies, even the odds of Lockheed Martin. Right.
1: Chris Ailman, thank you so much for stopping by. Always wonderful to speak with you and uh, hear about your 15-mile bike ride uh, to work every morning. Chris Ailman is Chief Investment Officer for California State Teachers Retirement System in Sacramento, California, uh, with more than $200 billion of assets under management. And he's not lonely anymore, uh, even though he is probably the only uh, CIO, certainly, of a retirement plan here at the 2017 Future of Energy Summit. We are here at the Future of Energy Summit, which is powered by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And we're lucky to be speaking with Ralph Izzo, Chairman, President and Chief Executive Officer of Public Service Enterprise Group Incorporated, that's otherwise known as PSE&G. And Ralph, I wanted to start with your uh, capital investment uh, program, which you have just recently laid out. And it includes a $4.7 billion of plan investments this year. That is the most ever in your history. What are you spending that money on? Sure,
3: that's right, Lisa. So it's uh, primarily in electric transmission. We have an aging infrastructure that is in desperate need of replacement, both from a reliability and a storm resiliency point of view. Uh, A close second is in gas pipe replacement. We have the largest cast iron main system, with many of our pipes approaching 100 years old. And then uh, probably in third place would be the fact that we're building three natural gas combined cycle power plants. So it's electric transmission, gas pipe replacement, and power plants.
0: Um, In addition to the portfolio, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about nuclear power generation.
3: Yeah, so we've actively engaged in a policy discussion around nuclear power. We're concerned that uh, short-term market forces will push the system to a one fuel only electric supply option, uh, that being natural gas. We believe natural gas is abundant. We do believe it's low cost and we do believe it's a clean fuel. But we just think that electricity is so core to the economy and our quality of life that a, a lack of fuel diversity could be a serious problem from a system interruption or resiliency point of view. And then, of course, that doesn't speak at all to the environmental benefits from an air emissions point of view of nuclear, f- and nor does it speak to the uh, fact that many nuclear plants are major employers in, in different states.
1: So, uh, what proportion of PSENG's uh, energy comes from renewable sources right now, and where do you see that going in the next decade?
3: Yeah. So, so right now, we are 57 percent of our output comes from nuclear. Uh, 35% of our output comes from natural gas, about 5% from coal, and the remaining 3 or 4% comes from renewables. More important uh, from a policy point of view is what percent of New Jersey's output comes from those various fuel sources. And New Jersey gets about 44% from nuclear, about 1% from renewables, and 55% from natural gas. So the absence of nuclear would make New Jersey a single fuel jurisdiction, which is just not a good idea.
0: So what are some of the steps or what are some of the programs that you're involved with in order to make sure that, for example, the plants stay open? Because I understand that you know some of them, they're not making any money, and you've already said that unless there's some way to figure out how to make these cost effective, they could be shut down.
3: So we're taking two approaches, Pim. One is to say, uh, if you look at organized markets, there's a missing money problem. Uh, It boggles the mind to think that a nuclear plant that that costs anywhere from $30 to $35 a megawatt hour would retire and be replaced by a new combined cycle plant that estimates range would require $50 to $60 a megawatt hour from a prudent investment point of view. How can the market create that reality that a low cost plant, would retire and be replaced by something that over the long term should be more expensive. So that's getting FERC to recognize that there's a price formation issue. At the state level, what we're saying is, if we look at how you're subsidizing renewables, arguably you're paying anywhere from two to $400 a ton of carbon to get less than 2% of your electricity from rooftop solar, grid connected solar. No one has ever estimated to be carbon worth that much. Why would you want to let your nuclear power plants retire, but you're getting paid zero for carbon today? So we're really approaching this at the policy level in two different ways. We're saying markets are not pricing the attributes of nuclear that are important, nor are states fairly pricing the attributes of carbon that they seem to be saying are important.
1: I like that, the missing money problem. I can say that, I can come home and say to my husband, we have a missing money problem after I went shopping today. Uh, You know, I I do want to just go back to this $15 billion spending plan, uh, capital spending program over the next five Five years. years, You know, we talk a lot about uh, jobs and you know, President Trump has emphasized jobs with the fossil fuel industry. Will you be hiring more people in order to complete some of these projects? Yes,
3: we, we, we are actively hiring people to complete these projects. Uh, we think that there are some improvements that could be made in state regulation to make the hiring of these people uh, less uh, lumpy, for lack of a better word. R- right now, utilities are compensated by state regulators in a way that's a that's been going on for a hundred years, and we just think that there needs to be a more predictable system of state regulation that allows us to hire people, train them, and keep them in the pipeline because. An aging infrastructure isn't getting younger, right? So we will need to continue this investment profile out uh, for the foreseeable future. And right now, the way in which we fund these programs is going back for incremental additions. So we hire a lot of contractors, or we hire people for a short duration. Uh, And what we'd rather do is hire them for a long-term career. But that requires a more predictable regulatory system than the one that's in place now.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure, Ralph Izzo is the Chairman, the President, and the Chief Executive of Public Service Enterprise Group, uh, better known as uh, PEG, at least that's the symbol. Well,
1: yeah,
0: PEG. PEG, PEG. Thank
1: you. Yeah,
0: it's PEG, and you're Lisa, okay. And you're Pam. Well, so far. And we're broadcasting, of course, from the 2017, the Future of Energy Summit. It's all powered by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at bloomberg.com/lens. We are broadcasting from the 2017 The Future of Energy Summit. It's all powered by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And here to tell us about energy policy and the world's climate situation is Barbara Buchner, the Executive Director of Climate Finance, of climate policy initiative. They are based in San Francisco. And Barbara Buchner can be followed on Twitter at bbuchner.com. 13. Barbara, thanks very much for being with us. Maybe just give people a little bit of an idea of what the Climate Policy Initiative is.
4: Sure, and thanks so much for having me here. So, Climate Policy Initiative is a non-for-profit organization, we really focus on helping policymakers and decision makers, how do, they can improve basically their policies around land use, climate, energy, Uh, but doing that with a specific focus on finance. So what we see is we really want to advise them on how to use public policies and public resources most effectively in order to unlock more investment and really get us on a low carbon climate resilient pathway. So you spend a lot of time in Washington, I would guess. Uh, Amongst other countries, we are a global organization.
1: So do you find that given the new presidential administration in the U.S. that you've gotten more pushback in Washington when you go and you talk with different uh, policymakers?
4: Well I do think you know that, and we've heard it also today at the summit here that there is a generally positive uh, sentiment that is caused by the falling technology costs of renewable energies. And so notwithstanding you know obviously some delays uh, or like some slowdown in, in some of due to some of the political developments, what we see is in a very good you know general trend saying that the energy transition is irreversible. And I think this is something that we hear also from policymakers, but obviously it is something, where you know we work a lot with the private sector in order to understand how we can make the case with policymakers on what their instrument should be in order to get the private sector in. So,
1: Have you found that you've had to make more of an argument on a financial level, much more so than in the past, where you could talk about the actual science behind uh, global warming, etc.? I mean, now is it sort of a finance focus? It's like, look, guys, you can save
4: money, so do it. Well, to be very open, you know, this is something which we've done over the last years already. As I said, like, we work not only in the U.S., we have offices in Brazil, in India, in, in Indonesia. And, you know, wherever we go, what we want to do is really enable economic growth while reducing climate risk. And so that, the narrative that we have is, you know, try to understand what's the incentives for the private sector to come in. You know, given the, the economics of, of renewables, we see actually a very positive trend there. At the same time, as I said, like I've, we've had not been, um, we've had not that many discussions now here in Washington, uh, in order to see what's the changes. We have not really seen any changes yet.
0: Maybe just give an example uh, of the kind of work and the kind of partnership that you have with states, because I know that you work with New York State on a renewable energy plan, and also you put together what's called a carbon dashboard for California. What are those things?
4: Yes, yeah, so the carbon dashboard, for example, this is really kind of to provide the information to all market players. We are tracking the prices of the carbon market in, in California and really try to kind of inform uh, decision-making by different stakeholders, public sector, or private sector, that's a state one. But you know, what I would love to talk about a little bit more is our interactions, not only with states, but with different types of stakeholders from like governments, from private sector, from commercial banks. Um, institutional investors and different types of really investors, both from the public and private side. And we do that uh, in the context of the Global Innovation Lab for Climate Finance that we manage as the secretariat. The idea there is really to work with different constituencies and different stakeholders to come up with innovative financial solutions that really can help use public money most effectively to drive private investment. So as you talk with people in these finance arms, do you encounter many climate change deniers? Um, Pause. Uh, Actually, Not really. I do see, you know, but again, I think the narrative you're using is not only focused on climate change. We really try to show that, you know. I understand
1: that. But I think that there is sort of this understanding that, you know, the clock is ticking among sort of certain scientific circles. So there's a certain urgency to making changes. Whereas, you know, if somebody doesn't necessarily buy into the argument that, you know, human man-made influences are causing global climate to uh, change substantially, then you know,
4: it, okay, maybe it saves me a few bucks, but what's the uh, incentive to really make a make a big change right now? Well, I think the incentive is that you can make money. There is a business case to invest in renewable energy and I see, you know, we've seen renewable energy costs go down and they're competitive is almost all regions and for almost all renewables. So, I do think, you know, there is a a shift in awareness that there is not only risks and you know it's like the unknown count and we have to stick to business as usual but that there is a real opportunity to go into new grounds and you know I think what we need to do is just to help scale that. Movement and make sure that we really fill, you know, the gap in investment that we see at the moment to get us on a on a two degrees pathway.
0: Now you have some f- you have financial support from the German Ministry of, of uh, the Environment, uh, also Open Society, right to George Soros, plus uh, from the Norwegian uh, government. Does having that government and that uh, foundation level support does that make a big difference in getting a project succeed? You know, to succeed. Give you about 20 seconds.
3: Well.
4: The support we receive is from multiple sources, not only the ones that you've seen. I think in the context of specific projects that we try try to, you know, pilot, there we really need initial seed funding from public sources. So, yes, there, you know, funding from governments, from foundations is really helpful to take off some of the risks that the private sector otherwise wouldn't be able to take. Thanks. Barbara-
0: yeah, Thanks very much. Um, Barbara Buchner is the Executive Director of Climate Finance and Climate Policy Initiative. Thank you very much for being uh, with thank us. Thank you
4: so much for having me.